Okay, let's begin this week from the fourth mission in the first in the first chapter. We're about to enter into a new uh, time period here. Historically, in the time period, is referred to as the Zugos. The Zugos are pairs. So until now, uh, we've been looking at single names. We looked at Shimon Hatzadik in Mishnah Beis. Uh, we learned about him. He was the Kohen Gadol for the first forty years in the Second Temple. Uh, most of it <coughs> overlaps with Persia, but towards the end. He was when he's the one who introduces the alliance of the Jewish people uh, with Greece with his with his famous meeting with Alexander the Great, and after that we saw that we had the character of Antignos Antignos Ishsoho. Those were the two people that we have learned about so far. And what jumps out at you right away is that as soon as we start Mishnah we lose the singularity. We're introduced to Zugos. Zugos means pairs, and they mean pairs because for the next few generations we're going to see that instead of having one person who is a leader in control of everything, both in terms of Torah and in terms of politics and in terms of the court, now suddenly we see that there's, there are, there's, it's divided into different roles. So the Mishnah says, Yosi ben Yuezer ish tereda, the Yosi ben Yochanan ish Yerushalayim kibbalu mehem. So we have two different people who are, who, who, are, who, are now, who are now in control. And the idea of the split is that the first person who is mentioned here in the Mishnah is the Nasi, and the second person is the Av Basin. And that's a big split. It's kind of like the difference, you know, between uh, politics, finance, if you want to refer to it as that, and the Av Basin, where it's, where it's solely halacha. Now, the Nasi is a complicated figure, and, and, and there are different, a lot of different people who had filled the roles historically, but the Av Basin was very much uh, specific to the roles of the courts and the deciding of the halacha, but the Nasi was much more of a public person. Um, so those are the first person who was mentioned is, is the Nasi, the second person is the Av Basin. And the irony that hits right away is that the period of the Zugos, of the split within the sect of the rabbis, that the rabbinic lineage now is split for the first time, uh, how, how, how much that overlapped with the idea of the split that we learned about last week. The split that we learned about last week is the introduction of the Tzedukim and the Baisusim, which came from Antinya Shesocho's students, his disciples. And how, as we discussed last week, they believe so much in the differences in opinions and divergence of thought and how they believe they're one of the most famous machloksim that they had with the rabbis is whether the carbon Talmud could be brought by an individual, where the Tzedukim pushed for the idea that the constant service of God is not necessarily a communal perspective, but an individual's perspective, and that there's tolerance in place for different views and different ways of thinking about things. Whereas the rabbis were more unified in more of the traditional conservative approach, which said, this is what we have. There really isn't as much tolerance for another way of thinking. But what happens here is that once we have the prevalence of tzedukim and the prevalence of, of foreign rule and things start getting a lot more complicated in the second base on Mikdash, what happens is, is that there's division within the rabbinic world itself. And a lot of that is out of necessity. It's because it was almost vital that the politics be separated from the basin. That's on one level, simply. But on a deeper level, what it represented was an erosion of tradition. And once within the Jewish people, there was that loss, that pristine idea that this person heard from this person who heard from this person, and that's it, that's all there's talk about. And now suddenly there's new, there's new ways of thinking. Then even within the Jewish, the Prussian, the, the, the rabbinic camp itself, we find split. And the Zugos, besides for splitting and the division of roles, which we're learning about, there's something very, very important which takes place in the time of the Zugos. The mission comes in the, from Chagiga, we learned that the first machlokes ever 
to be unresolved in Kalal Yisrael comes from these two men, Yossi ben Yoezer, Yossi ben Yochanan, Yushu Yishalayim. So which these two people who ever have a halachic dispute that cannot be re- resolved. And that's a tremendously novel point. Until this point, uh, whenever there would be a question, it would just be very simple to resolve. If not everybody, usually people would agree. It was a question of tradition and misora, as the Raman tells us. Usually there weren't that many problems. If there were, then it was quickly resolved by the Sanhedrin. They were able to take a quick vote, figure out what the Ravim said, and that was it. That was the end. There wasn't much to, to fight about. But with now, we learn about the Zugos. The Zugos, not only are they divided in their roles, they are now divided in the halachic realm. And what they introduce to us is a different way of Torah, where Torah now enters into a new period, the period of Machlokas, the time when things actually are disputed in ways that they cannot be resolved. And this is a, 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 such a, a radical change within what the way that Torah is meant to be. Torah Shabbat Al-Ped, the whole realm of it, the point of Torah Shabbat Al-Ped is the point of tradition. And within tradition, it's very difficult to have dispute. And even when not every issue was discussed by one's Rebbe, this is an idea that the Ramam discusses, but at least the Klalim had been there, meaning that the concepts were there. So even if the, every single application one had not heard from their Rebbe, but two very strong-minded, wise, brilliant minds like the Chachamim were usually able to come to the same conclusion if they had heard the same Klalim from, from their Rebbe, which makes a lot of sense. Even if you can't apply exactly every single thing from drawing the exact correlation from what the Rebbe said, as long as you know the rules, you know the principles, and we have the brilliant minds at work, then theoretically the system should be effective that there shouldn't be that many disputes that come amongst Kla Yisrael. However, now with the Zugos, there's Machlokas, and there's Machlokas within the realm of Torah. And that's obviously the point, that once there is division, division will now drive, will, will now be a force, you can't keep it out of anything, including uh, the, house, the house of Torah, and that's why we find the first machlokas. And this machlokas, the, the Mishnah tells us, they actually went on for generations. It was a generation of a fight. The, the fight, it doesn't seem to be directly related to this issue. It's difficult to understand the significance of why this fight particularly uh, held so much you know, space in the, in the Tanom, but in the Zugos, but it was about doing smicha on Yantif. It's a very interesting thing, a person leaning their, animal, their, their, their hands upon an animal right before slaughtering on Yantif. The issue is, you know, you're not supposed to, um, you're not supposed to lean on an animal on on yantif, and there's a whole question about whether one can lean their hands on an animal before doing the shchita. But regardless of what the the content of the dispute was, the more important point is that there was dispute. Now, these two um, of these two people, Yosi ben Yosi ben Yosef we find something um, absolutely incredible about him, and I think I think what it is, it's really telling of the times. It's telling of this, the, the difficulty of times within the second, uh, the second, the second Beis HaMikdash. In the second Beis HaMikdash, it, it was extremely volatile. The times, it starts off Berja, then it suddenly goes to Greece, then it's Chashmonam, and then eventually after the Chashmonam, we get, they bring in Rome, and then we have Herod. So everything is very complicated. There are many different powers that come in. And in the times of Yotzi ben Yoezer, it's the beginning of the Greece reign where we have the Chashmonam, uh, now coming to power. And there are some difficulties exactly with the dates in the history, but according to the Gemara Baba Basra, the Gemara Baba Basra says that Yosef ben Yosef Yisraeli actually had a son who was not good. And because he had a son that wasn't good, actually Yosef ben Yosef Yisraeli totally disinherited him. And he had this purse full of money, the Gemara says, and, the, and he just said, that's it, I'm donating it to the temple. I, I see no reason to give it to my son. And it's extremely, it's extremely powerful move that he did to place the temple ahead of family. And that's a difficult point. 
the Gemara, that the Gemara then actually questions whether or not it was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. The Gemara takes this question and debate very seriously. Is it commendable if a person has a bad son to disinherit him and to donate instead to God or to try to preserve the family? And the Gemara goes back and forth on this issue. What happened was, the Gemara says, is that his son actually met, uh, and this is a little bit difficult historically with the dates, but his son marries the, um, the, the daughter of the crown maker for Yanai HaMelech. And eventually there's a story, they, they, they strike gold, there's inside of the fish, they find this, uh, this great jewel, and this giant jewel is worth so much, and they're able to, they are able to, to sell it to the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash needed it for the, um, the, Kohen, the Kohen Gadol's Choshen. They needed the precious jewel, and they were able, the Beis HaMikdash couldn't even afford the full amount that it was really worth, that it was appraised for. And the remaining excess, what it wasn't worth, Actually, his son just donated to the Beis HaMikdash and he only took what the Beis HaMikdash was able to pay him, which was a bunch of purses of money. And there the Gemara goes through. It's an amazing sense how we have the father who's donating one purse of money and that the son ends up donating so many more purses of money through the story. And it seems like it's, uh, the Gemara is trying to use this story, looking at it from two sides. Are we supposed to take, is the takeaway that the father had done the wrong thing by disinheriting the son? And that's how it comes back. And it ends up that the son actually is giving so much more to the Beis HaMikdash than the father ever did. So here, you know, the father's trying to, to, to teach his lesson to the son and push him away and, and give the money instead to the Beis HaMikdash. But what ends up happening is that the son actually gives so much more to the Beis HaMikdash than the father had given. So that's one way of looking at it. Or the Gemara actually says maybe it's the opposite. He had done, he had done a wonderful thing by disinheriting his son. Look, the son didn't donate the full value to the base of Mikdash. He got greedy. He tried to take as much as he could. Had the base of Mikdash had all the money in the world, he would have taken all of it. So the Gemara has, you know, two ways of looking at it. But that's extremely telling of the times how you could have someone like that, who's this great uh, Gadol, the Nassim Kla Yisrael, and yet his son is marrying, you know, the, 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 the daughter for the, for the Yanei HaMelech, from the, from the, from the crown maker of Yanei HaMelech, and he's not a good person. So that's, that's again, uh, very, very much telling of the times. In fact, moreover, there's a whole story in the, in the Medrash, Berish's Rabbah, about how, how Yosef ben Yuezer was actually executed. He was said, put out to death by, and it was, only, it was his own nephew who uh, instigated the whole thing. His own nephew was not a good person, but he, he became, he had a lot of power, and he became one of the people who became actually uh, one of the Kohen Gedolim. And, um, and he had, there's this great debate that they have as he's being executed, and Yosef ben Yoezer actually uses these words that are me'orah tshuva in his nephew before he dies, and his, his nephew ends up going So again, it's very fascinating. You know, you have this Yosef ben Yoezer character, the Nasi, the great leader of the Jewish people, surrounded by, by problems. He's played by problems. His son's off the derech, and his nephew's off the derech. His own nephew is, put, is, is executing him. And yet somehow everybody ends up some, doing the right thing. It's his, his, his son is donating more to the base of Mikdash than he ever did. And his nephew's going by one, by one comment that he had said before he's taken out to, to be in, in, in execution. And it's a beautiful, there's a sense of beauty in the story. The sense of beauty is, you know, somehow, HaKadosh Baruch who is obviously orchestrating the events and it's difficult to understand how everything works, but there's always, it's always complicated within families. You know, it's amazing. You know, we don't, we don't live with this as much, as much today, but it, just for example, in my, my own family, I, I come from a, you know, a very illustrious family of, of rabbis on both, both sides of my family, but my, my mother's grandfather, uh, his name is Rabbi Leazar Levine. Rabbi Leazar Levine was a rabbi in Detroit for many, many years. And he was, you know, he's from Lita, from Lithuania. He actually lived with the Chafetz Chaim for a few years and was very close to him. Chafetz Chaim actually pushed him to come to, come to America to take position here. At any rate, you know, we're just studying a little bit of the, of, the, of the family tree recently. It's amazing to see, like, 
he was virtually the only, uh, with a bunch of siblings, and he was pretty much the only one who was from. All the rest of them were, they were communists. That's pretty much what they were. And it's, it's, an, it's, it's an amazing point just to reflect on how, you know, I think, you know, come from this huge family of rabbis. And, and the huge family of rabbis, it was, it, was, it was one of many brothers, and there were many people who, who, who didn't see it that way. And to, to, to realize sometimes how, how we live in such a, a narrow perspective today, how everyone is, has the same opportunities to see the good and the, how everything is so clear and the power of Torah and within, you know, then usually within our families. But the, it's not always like that. And here, you know, we, we're learning about it from historically how Yosef and Yoezer has such a thing. He's living through dispute. He's learning through global dispute. He's living through communal dispute. He's living through dispute within his colleagues. He's living in dispute with his, within his family. His entire life, in a certain regard, seems to be just fraught with all these issues and dispute that come up in every realm um, of his life. Now, with, given that background, uh, let's look at something that he says. So Yosef and Yosef is Israel to Yosef. Yosef and Yochan Yishlam kibul mehem. They said Yosef and Yosef is Israel to Omer. Yehei beischa beiz vaad lachachamim. That a person's house should be a house of a place of meeting for the rabbis. Vehevim is avak afara glehem. That they should one should sit by the dust of their feet from the dust of the feet of the rabbis. Rabbi shows about some as the rayim, and they should drink. Uh, their words of Torah with thirst, carefully following every word that they say. So those, these are the three points that Yosef and Yosef says. Make one house, the base, father, chachamim, meeting place for the chachamim, to, to, to sit in the dust of their feet and to drink thirstily their words. So let's try to analyze this a little bit where it's coming from. So number one, once we're now learning about machlokas, right? This is the whole point. Let's think about it a little bit more. How did machlokas really develop? So we keep on saying it's just division. But the famous words of the Gemara in Sanhedrin is that Every sense of machlokas came from Talmidim who weren't mishamish the rabbeim correctly. What does it mean, Talmidim who weren't mishamish? So shimush is a difficult word to translate. Shimush can mean serving, you know, like serving, attending to. But shimush in this context, I think, really means something else. Shimush means that they weren't, they weren't, um, except they weren't paying attention that well. They they didn't really know exactly what the klalim were. We have, you know, for example, the Gemara Mitzvahim who says that. Uh, Hillel said that to the Bnei Yisrael, you weren't mishamish Ashmaiyavavtamim correctly. You didn't really know all the things that they said, and yet a lot of times when you have Talmidim who are by the Rebbe, but they don't know exactly precisely what the Rebbe and were saying, and that comes from is not necessarily a lack of brain power, shimshu kol sarkam. But what the idea is, is that it's a lack of total respect to cling to exactly what the Rebbe said, and that, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, is the origin of dispute. So this is the point that Yosef ben Yoezer is speaking to. He's speaking to the time of division. He's speaking to the future of Kal Yisrael. A future of Kal Yisrael who's going to see Machlokas becoming the new norm within the base Medrash. And he's, he's, he's desperately clinging. And he's saying, And the theme of all of these three things is respect the Talmud HaChachamim. Cling to every single thing that they're saying. Don't disrespect in any way. Try as much as you can to know exactly and precisely each one of their columns. Because the more that we have that, the less that dispute will now wreak havoc amongst, amongst the learning process. And, and, and again, communally uh, between different, different rabbis. So that's the pleading of Yosef Ben Yoezer. Now, it is interesting to note that even though 
from this perspective, it seems like machlokas is so negative and it's sad and it's, it's, it's just reflective of the fact that Talmidim aren't clinging to their words of their rabbeim correctly. The truth is that we know in the, in the, from the Gemara in, in, in Erevin, famous Gemara, the, the Gemara says that Beisham and Bisol, who had so many disputes, that it was Elu Ve'elu Dibri'elokim Chayim, that both positions can be the word of, get, you know, connected to God and they're both right and that's the, 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 the origin of two Jews fighting and they're both right. There's a concept to that, that machlokas is actually beautiful. And, and, and today, to this day, there's a methodology in the yeshivas, in the way that we study dispute, as trying to see that there's never a resolution to one side of the debate without understanding the other side. The best understanding is coming from the fact that first we understood what the other opinion was saying. When you look at it superficially and you say it's wrong, well then you don't have shot in the machlokes. To really understand what's really going on in the machlokes, you have to really you have to explain really well what one opinion was saying. Then you can understand, begin to understand why the other opinion disagreed. And then if you're really good, you can understand that the root of the dispute is in something else entirely. That's a very popular methodology within the yeshiva system. And what that does is that it celebrates machlokas. It says that machlokas is This is a matter of beauty. This is a matter of two perspectives which are both right. And the application may, in the end of the day, be different for both of them. But the thinking itself is beautiful. And it always bothered me, this question. I saw the Rama famously found that the Rama actually asked it. But how on the one hand can we celebrate machlokas and say, create all methodologies of it, Think of it as the biggest shtikl Torah and pilpul of Torah out there to, to, to get into what a dispute is. And at the same time, say the dispute is what we're mourning. What we're mourning is a lack of respect for Mitzvah And We're looking at the, the roots of dispute and saying there must have been Talmidim who have erred here. Erred, not an understanding and, 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 and remembering exactly what the Rabbeim have said and the Klolim and remembering the way that it was supposed to be. So which one is it? And what it seems to be from the Rambam and his answer is that it's, it's, it's actually Yeridas Hadoros. And it's a telling of the times. And there was... When we say that they weren't Mishamish called Sarkhan, there was an inability to cling perfectly to what the Rabbeim were saying. And the HaKadosh Baruch Hu orchestrates that now Torah moves and evolves into a new era, an era of Machlokes. And it becomes celebrated with new Talmidim who haven't known exactly what the Rabbeim are trying to say, so they can't agree what the Rebbe would say in a new circumstance. They have two different ways of thinking about it. Until then, the people were on a level that they were so in sync with what the Rabbeim said that there wasn't a place. There wasn't a place for thinking now creatively and trying to think what makes sense here. It was a question of applying what the Rebbe had said to this situation. If you really were zoned in on what the Rebbe held, then there wouldn't be a dispute. Two great minds who knew exactly what the Rebbe's column were, most of the time they would come out with exactly an agreement what, what the halacha should be. It's only when we stop being so in sync with our Rabbeim that that creates a whole new level of creativity within Torah when we now are forced to think through things without knowing what the Rebbe would say in a certain case. And the Rambam is saying that it represents that the minds weren't as great anymore. Not as great in the sense, not in terms of pure IQ, but not as great in terms of the ability to stay in sync with the Rebbe's mind. And it's, that was something that was lost. And as soon as there's a period of machlokas in Klai Yisrael, machlokas comes into Torah. And once that happens, people stop clinging to the words of the Rebbe as much. Once that occurs, there's a new way of thinking about things. So this is in the very origins. So Rabbi Yosef and Yoezer is now bemoaning the certain fact. He's saying, Look at what's happening here. We're not necessarily clinging to the words of the Chachamim as well. So even there's going to be a new era of Torah. And there's going to be a whole new thing how we're going to think on our own and there's going to be machlokas and we're going to celebrate it and we're going to say But remember, there's also a root of all machlokas based upon the fact that we're unable to perfectly cling to the rules and principles that our Rebbeim have taught us. And that's something that we need to work on. And that's the balance. 
says the Mishnah here in Perkei Avos. Yes, we're going to have disputes. Yes, they were introducing a new era of dispute amongst Kala Yisrael. But their lesson in Perkei Avos is cling as much as you can to what the Rabbeim said. So there's reluctance. And that's always been the approach. And we're struck even to this day. How much in the base Medrash are we meant to be creative? How much are we supposed to be traditional? How much are we supposed to repeat what the Rebbe said? How much are we supposed to disagree? That's a complicated, very complicated thing, which still we try to balance to this day. But it's just, it's an amazing point just studying the, the history of Yosef and Yoazer to appreciate and the context for his statement. I, I think that... Um, the second statement that he makes, exactly, there are two meanings. There's a duality of meaning to that phrase, and it's exactly this duality that we're referring to. Lehisabek in Hebrew can mean two things. So first of all, lehisabek ba'afaragleim, abek means, it can mean to cling. And that's what it means, to cling to the dust of their feet. And the idea, you even hear it, first of all, in the literal sense, the Rebbe used to stand, they would sit on the floor. So if they were sitting on the floor, so the idea of sitting on the floor is there's going to be dust. There's going to be dust coming off from the feet of the Rebbe, which is going to stick now to, um, to, the, to the disciples. And what they're saying is it may come from the feet, but don't find that, that that's beneath you to get from the dust of the feet of the Rebbe. And what that's trying to depict is you may not be on the level of the Rebbe. And you may think, you know, I'm not getting anything. But whatever you get, get it and cling to it. Because we're always going to, and we're not going to be exactly like the Rebbe, but there are glimpses that we can get of a misabic ba'afara glam. And what this point is also trying to say is, it's, it's ultimate nullification. It's bittal. It's saying, even though you're only at their feet, you recognize that, but make yourself that you're only at their feet. It's okay. Make yourself that you only come up to the ankles of your Rebbe, and that's also okay. It will create greater bittal, greater nullification, a great, greater preservation of the importance of the Torah of what the Rebbe is trying to say. So I think that's the one meaning of Avimis Abik Ba'afaraglam, and that's probably the simple pshat. The simple pshat, nothing is beneath you, sit at the dirt, right at their feet. There's going to be dirt that's going to be coming up, it seems, but whatever you can get, cling to it. Whatever you get, because you can preserve the tradition that way. But Rabbi Chaim Valashina famously said a different shot, and Rabbi Misabak Ba'afaraglam. Rabbi Valashina said like this We find in the Pasuk, by Yaakov Avinu wrestling with the Malach of Esau. It says, What does Vayyavik Ishimo? It means to struggle, to wrestle. And it means to wrestle, there it says, because when two people are wrestling, and this is where you hear it, they kick up dirt. That's what happens. You kick up dirt, right? When you're wrestling in the, in the, in the sun, there's the, the, the particles, the dust, the mud, it, it gets kicked up. So said that when you sit by a Rebbe, you don't keep silent. You don't sit there and just accept every single thing the Rebbe said. You have to struggle. You have to struggle with the Rebbe and you struggle with the dust of their feet. What that means is while you're being bottled to the Rebbe and while you're doing that, but kick up sand, kick up dust, wrestle with it. If you don't understand something, ask. And if there's something that's bothering you, speak it through or articulate the other opinion. Force it through with the Rebbe. Create a struggle. Create a Papilashal Torah. Create a war of Torah with the Rebbe. And that struggle with the Rebbe is exactly what the role of the Talmud is supposed to do, says Rabbi Chaim Balazhna. So that's the Lashon Fabim, to struggle with that dust, to create that the dust is going to rise up, not to sit there and just keep silent and accept blindly every single thing that the Rebbe is saying. So how amazing is it when you put those two shatim together? On the one hand, is saying nullification of the Rebbe to the Talmud. Just sit there. Just sit there. It doesn't matter that he's much higher. It doesn't matter that, that, that what you're getting is dust off their feet. Just accept, cling to what they say as much as you can. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, have a mesabic ba'afaraglam. What does that mean? Fight with them. Struggle with them. Kick up dirt with them. 
I don't understand which one can it be. How can you have one words with one word which creates such difference of meaning here? the simple But the idea and answer is is that it's both. And that's the struggle. It's the balance of both. And within the era of Machlokas, where now there's a new way of learning Torah, where, where there's creative thinking. And at the same time, Yosef ben Yoezer is saying, but you got to cling and preserve whatever the Rebbe had. It comes to life. That both meanings are true. That to sit there and cling to whatever we had and preserve and try to have it, whatever you can have from the Rebbe, that's number one. But number two is to struggle, to fight with the Rebbe, because this is an era of Machlokas. We're now thinking um, in different ways than we have before. Just to mention a couple other points here in the Mishnah, there's a very strange language here. Your home should be the meeting place of rabbis. So it doesn't say that rabbis should meet in your home. It says your home should be the base. So there are people who explain that what they're saying is that it's not a question of you know, hosting a, a chabur in one's home. What it means is that a person should live, his home should be wherever the rabbis are. That's one understanding of what it means. Another understanding is that even if it does mean to invite rabbis into your home, to ha- it's, a, it's a wonderful value. What it means is that it shouldn't just be something that happens circumstantially in one's home. Yehei beischa, a home, a, a one's home should be, it should be defined as a base vada chachamim, a place where rabbis can come. And the idea of being a base vada chachamim, the famous idea from the brother of the Gon, is that it doesn't only mean necessarily literally, but it means through sfarim, through having many sfarim. If a person has Torah, books of Torah in their house, Matter even if they're not studying them constantly, but the mere fact that their home is what is the home? It's a base vada chachamim, and what's a base vad, a place of meeting? So we find that the term for the mishkan, for example, is oamoid, also a tent of meeting. What does it mean, meeting? It means a meeting between God and people. Why do we call it the Ol Moed, this place, or a base vad? It's a meeting where God, the radiance of God, is able to shine forth to connect to a certain location location, and from there it spreads to other places. That's the meaning of mishkan. God's God's radiance comes here, it comes to this specific location, and then it spreads out. So too, that's what one's home is. And ideally, it's a base vada chachamim. It's a place where it's a meeting. God's wisdom comes, and there's Torah that comes from there, and from there it disseminates, and it, and it spreads throughout the, um, throughout the world. That is the ideal, the ideal point, and it should be that's what the home is. Not only something that takes place in the home, but that defines the home. Uh, the last point to mention here in the Mishnah, Habashosa Sama. To think thirstily the, the words that they say. So first of all, as divrahim, the words, there are many that say that it does now, divrahim means their words, as if even the idle words, there's a famous chazal uh, that says, that we have to learn from even just the regular talk from Tamidah Chachamim should be studied. So even the regular divrahim, even if it's not, you know, the most speaks of Torah and divrei Torah, but just having them around, having Tamidah Chachamim around as a part of your life, that, that can pay off and a person can be greatly influenced with that. But there's another important, important thing. We say to sit, to cling, to, or to wrestle, as we said from Chaim Balazhana, to the dirt of their feet. And, the other, and that represents a sense of struggle, the struggle of Torah. The second one, the, the, a point of Shosa Batsama's Devarim, to drink their words of Torah thirstily. So just listen to it in the illustration. One is a struggle, and one is thirst and delight. And that's really the concept, and this is where there's a balance of Torah within the struggle, what we call the war of Torah, and then the light of Torah, the gishmak of Torah, the enjoyment of Torah. And the enjoyment of Torah comes from thirst. When one, someone is thirst, they get thirsty, they're trying to drink, it, nothing tastes better. And in fact, the irony is that with Torah, you can't drink enough. It's an insatiable thirst, it never actually is quenched. 
the Mishabek Vaparaglim represents the toil of Torah, the Amilus of Torah, not necessarily the delight of Torah. Havashosa Batsamas Debrayim represents all of the enjoyment, the thirst of knowledge, the enjoyment that Torah has. And this goes back to the famous issue of which one is it in Torah? Is Torah more about the struggle, the work that we put into it, the Asik of Torah, the struggle, or is it more about the thirst, the enjoyment of Torah? So I just want to share a beautiful insight. I heard from my grandfather about this, about uh, he discussed the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam. So Rabbeinu Tam's opinion is that in Berchas HaTorah, we say, So that's the bracha, So there's a big question in the Rishonim if the bracha ends there. After that, we say, so the question is, is Vahayrav not a continuation of the bracha or is it a new bracha? A new bracha? There are many nafkaminos and halacha, but just to give one, should a person answer Amen? Do you answer Amen? When, where is the end of the bracha? Another question that Rabbeinu Tam was coming to address is that usually a bracha starts with Baruch HaTah Hashem. So why is it that there's, that, that, that Vahayrav not just continues without a Baruch HaTah Hashem? So Rabbeinu Tam's opinion is that it's one big bracha. Rabbeinu Tam felt that the bracha doesn't end. That's not the end of the bracha. The, the, the Harav Noah is actually a continuation of the bracha itself. That's Rabbeinu Tam's opinion. But the question on Rabbeinu Tam is, why is that? I mean, you look at other berachas hamitzvahs, for example. You know, a Maisa HaMitzvah, you describe what the act of the mitzvah is, you make a bracha on it, and, and, and you're done, right? You don't start describing and, and davening and, and, and talking, about, talking about the mitzvah. You just say that, you know, thank you, God has sanctified me for, for commanding me to do this mitzvah. But Rabbi Tamel, that listen to the bracha, the essence of the mitzvah is to struggle. La'asok, to be busy, to delve like a business, to struggle. La'aso, to be busy with it. That's the essence of the mitzvah. No one's going no to no argue on that point. Of course, the Iker mitzvah of Torah is to struggle with it, to work with it, to treat it as if it's a war. However, what we realize is that you can't end the bracha on such a thing. That's not an end to Torah. The end to Torah is the haravna, that we pray to God that it turns sweet, that God sweeten it out to us. Because the message that we're trying to say is that if Torah is only about the commandment of the mitzvah to struggle and toil with it, then it's not what defines and preserves the Jewish people. The Talmud Torah Kenegek Hulam, the value of Torah that keeps the Jewish people is only when it's followed with Vaharavna, when the Jew feels the sweetness of Torah, and when the bracha doesn't end with the Maaseh HaMitzvah, by the description of what I know that God wants me to do. But I view the Talmud Torah as something I love to do, something that's enjoyable, something that's sweet. And if the bracha doesn't have the harev, then unfortunately what's going to happen is there's no longer going to be an Eitzvah HaTorah. There won't be anymore just the bracha of That's the explanation of Rabbeinu Tam, the beauty behind Rabbeinu Tam's opinion. That there's the bracha mitzvah but we need God v'harev, no. We need the thirst. We need to enjoy it. Without the enjoyment, it won't work. So you notice we have different different vows. That we got to struggle with it. It's not always good. On the other hand, you know we have the Egle Tal telling us in his in his words one of the most famous things is that part of the part and parcel of the mitzvah of the Torah is to enjoy it. And sometimes people think, you know, they feel guilty if they're enjoying the study too much. And Egle Tal says, no, the enjoyment of the mitzvah is part of it. And which one is it? It's got to be both. And if you want to say, perhaps a little bit creatively, that we see in the Mishnah, that there's two times at the Rebbe. The struggle comes with the Rebbe, kicking up the struggle, the dirt, and that's the wrestling with the tradition of Torah, trying to memorize the facts, so on and so forth. Then there's a different, there's a different dimension. There's the dimension of, of, of Tzama, where a person comes with thirst, 
with thirst, when they love a Rebbe, when they love what the Rebbe is saying and they just can't get enough of it, they're not wrestling with the Rebbe. Listen to the words. They're drinking it up thirstily. So there's different times. There's different Rabbeim. There's different Divrei Torah. There's different times. There's different contexts. There are times when we're struggling with the Torah, when we're fighting, when we're wrestling. And that's the way we gain with it. And we still preserve a tradition to come up with the most pristine idea that this was passed down from me, from my Rebbe, from his Rebbe, from his Rebbe. And there's other times that we come with thirst and we're not struggling at all. And it just goes and we're drinking it up. So Yosef ben Yoezer is, is saying that both of these things are valuable. And these three lessons that he says, that our home should be places where rabbis come, where we cling to the dust of their feet, and where we drink thirstily their words, now summarize his overall message of clinging to rabbis, of being connected to them, of the general approach to Torah, as this enters into the new era of Torah study, of Torah study the era of Machlokas in Klai Israel.